Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hava Sowers Ross. And I'm Eleni Jones. On the show this week, Sean Durkin takes on the Von Erich curse in The Iron Claw. I spoke to Jeannie Finlay and Aubrey Gordon about their powerful new documentary, Your Fat Friend. Steve McQueen returns with an epic documentary, Occupied City, adapted from his wife Bianca Stitka's book on Amsterdam's Nazi occupation. And I spoke to them both about their film. And on Film Club, it's a return to the wrestling ring in Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. All coming up on Truth and Movies and Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome back to you both. Well, welcome back to Hafa, podcast favourite. How have you been? I have been good. I've been going um, from festival to festival this time of the year, looking forward to Berlin coming up around the corner. So, it's been an exciting start of 2024, and I'm happy to be here. Well, and we have a new guest on this week, someone I am very, very excited to talk to. It's Miss Ellen E. Jones, or Mrs. Ellen E. Jones, I suppose you got married last year. No, I prefer the Ms., the mysterious Ms. I like to keep people out of the loop on my marital status for, for, for old-style feminist reasons. But um, yeah, no, well, I'm a new guest at the podcast, but I was thinking the other day, I believe that I was at the Little White Lies launch party back when Matt Buczynski was the editor. So I'm um, I'm actually old OG Little White Lies. <laughs> we are standing on your shoulders and very grateful for uh, for the institution you had some part in. But I am really excited to have you on Plucky this week because you've got an amazing uh, new book out. That's right. Thank you for calling it amazing. I believe it is, but you know <laughs> that's up to the reader to decide. Yeah, it's called Screen Deep: How Film and TV Can Solve Racism and Save the World. And it's kind of a combination of of two sort of passionately held beliefs of mine. One is that screen storytelling. Storytelling is the way that, you know, we as humans tell each other about ourselves. And it's the only way we can really change mind because it evokes empathy. And whereas literature can do that too and other kinds of art, screen storytelling in film and TV has a particular power because of the communal way we watch it in the case of cinema and also just because it's a mass medium in a way that other art forms aren't. And, And, you know, you could say... I suppose social media is a mass medium, but social media doesn't then have that storytelling aspect in the same way. So there's that part. And then the other part of it is this perception that I have, that although we all know that we don't want to be racist, really ideas about race and racism are kind of very muddily understood generally. 
there's a lot of the sort of colloquial understanding of what race and racism is unhelpful. This, this, the, the idea that race is not like a biological certainty, the idea of subcategorizing human beings according to race is nonsense. There's no genetic or biological basis for it, that race is a social construct. That idea is not, I think, as well understood as it needs to be. So the book is all about how we can use film and TV to, to spread the kind of deeper understanding of race and racism. And I mean, in your work as, you know, a film critic, a broadcaster, you've got a show on the BBC, but like, have you seen the conversation change when it comes to race in film? Uh, yes. Um, and in a kind of interesting but incomplete way. So like it, around like 2014, there was, I'm sure you remember the Oscars So White campaign. And, and, and a lot of the conversation has been about diversity, meaning we need to get more black and brown faces into television, more non-white faces onto, onto our screens. And also about representation, you know, the sort of in Michelle Obama's um, conception, if you can see it, you can be it. It's good for, for little kids of colour to see themselves represented doing incredible things and being very successful. And I, and I kind of feel that that's just a, a, only the very small beginning steps to a truly kind of anti-racist screen culture, which would also involve like making more widespread this deeper understanding of, of what race and, and, and racism and anti-racism really is. You know, often like when Hollywood, Hollywood likes to make films about race, but they're of a very particular kind. They're kind of soothing ones where you have often a white saviour character inserted who ends up kind of fighting discrimination in the Deep South during the you know, Jim Crow era or who who like helps lead a, an enslaved person to liberty or something like that. So they fulfill this soothing function without actually talking to us about the essential humanity that belongs to all of us, not just white people, and also about how we dismantle the kind of ideas of white supremacy that are quite insidious and pervasive in our culture. I'm so curious, Ellen, um, because I was reading a little bit about all of the films and television that you mentioned in your book. And how did you really funnel what you were talking about? Because it just seems like such a spiraling mm. web of subjects oh, yeah. and and finding your pool of what you talk about. Did you have like a moment when you first started the book when saying, this is my connecting thread? Yeah, I definitely, I well, a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's a huge subject. I definitely bought a bit off more than I could chew in a way. So I had to sort of artificially impose some barriers. One was that I decided that I wasn't going to talk about documentary. I was specifically going to talk about narrative uh, screen storytelling, uh, partly because of this idea of mine that the storytelling itself is very important. And then another is that I, I only looked, I'm only looking at English language stuff. Like there's a load you could say. Obviously like European colonialism, it was practiced by not just Britain, you know, it was practiced by other European nations and therefore there's loads of kind of art from around the world that could also be a part of this conversation but because my um French isn't much up to <laughs> scratch and for, and for other reasons I sort of decided to narrow it there as well um, and then also like the decision to make it really about race and racism as a kind of consequence of colonial history means that I um there's not much in the book about anti-semitism for instance which predates the kind of colonial construct of of, of race of black black of this kind of black and white binary um or you know other kinds of racism as well and like I have had moments where I've thought mm, it would have been interesting to look at that but it's it, but it's its roots are so different and it manifests so differently in the current screen culture in Hollywood which let's not forget was basically established by a lot of Jewish blokes from like first generation or second generation European immigrants from New York. So like the, the way that anti-Semitism manifests in screen culture is, is very different and kind of maybe needs its own book. 
but but at the same time like mm, it would have been nice to include that so yeah so yeah I had to I had to put lay down a lot of artificial lines <laughs> there's enough material for a um sequel just looking to <laughs> just yeah. documentaries or just European well, films well the most exciting thing is like there are lots of filmmakers doing really interesting stuff. Like the the barriers to making art are not as interesting as what we do once we're past the barriers, right? And there are like I wanted it was necessary to write about a lot of kind of racist films, basically, in order to get to this to the point where I, where I really wanted to be, which is talking about the really exciting filmmakers, mostly of colour, but also white filmmakers who are like interestingly investigating and interrogating their own racial identity and racial constructs and racism in the world and like there's I, every day there's kind of more stuff that does that with you know varying degrees of success and I'm like oh I wish I could have included that in the book like Killers of the Flower Moon I think is a really interesting film from a racial perspective and like a, in, interrogating whiteness um and indigenous identity of course but um but like it, that came out a little bit too late for me to include it in the book in terms of like you know something like killers of the flower moon or i've recently just been doing a bit of research into films about apartheid how do you think these things get handled when we're still you know these stories about people of color are in the hands of white filmmakers virtually all the apartheid films are yeah i mean and 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 this is this is where the kind of route one conversation about representation meets the sort of more complex areas that i want to get into which is like it is necessary to diversify the film industry. It is necessary for people of colour to tell their own stories, to be given the same opportunities that white filmmakers are to tell whatever kind of story they want to, not just one narrow kind of, you know, for instance, for a long time, the only time black women particularly or really anybody of colour got recognised at the Academy Awards, it was for playing a very specific kind of role, like the mammy role, or it was, or directors of colour might get recognised if they were telling a white story. So Ang Lee is like the first director of colour I think to win an academy award I think it's only and that was for sense and sensibility so that is an issue that has to be conquered but once we get to a point where there is a bit more opportunity and we're not quite there yet I should say that we still need a lot more opportunity for directors of colour but then I think we're in an interesting area where you talk about who has the right to tell what stories and what can they do and the reason I'm a fan of Killers of the Flower Moon is because it seems to me that there's a kind of humble acceptance in Scorsese's filmmaking that what he has to be about is investigating the whiteness the, the individual culpability of white Americans in the murder and savagery of colonialism basically but also how that manifests in interpersonal relationships like the romance between which which is obviously is a real romance it's not just a kind of fable for us to explore this abstract idea and and that but also there's something in the in the film in the in the ending i don't want to ruin it for anybody who hasn't seen it but the choice of the way the film ends which is very unusual and also in lily gladstone's performance which is very kind of taciturn but knowing that for me leaves space Leads is an, in itself an acknowledgement that these stories still need to be told by Indigenous filmmakers, that there is a limit to what Mike Scorsese can do. And a lot of white filmmaking for a long time has been based on this dangerous and faulty premise that white filmmakers have access to the universality of the human experience and can can speak for all the commonality of humanity in a way that people racialised people can only speak for their race, you know. So that they just don't, that racialized filmmakers just don't have access to. So I like it for that. I mean, as a critic, do you think like the opposite has been true for you? Just like given that you've had such kind of limited representation of like black women on screen, that you've sort of been forced into this kind of role of empathy more so than maybe some of your white male counterparts. Yeah, but I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I, not just as a critic, as a viewer, I think it's true that, that people who aren't white men 
have this vast experience and I don't see it as being forced into I see it actually as a real privilege and what I mean so just to finish that thought if you've grown up in a cinema culture or a tv culture where most of the time most of the really interesting filmmaking that's not like that's actually exploring the full humanity of the characters is about white men, middle-class, straight, able-bodied white men, cis white men, then you're always having lots of experience, not always, but often experiencing, stretching your empathy, understanding what connects you to those characters beyond your racial identity or gender identity or whatever else. So you have, you're, you're exercising that empathy muscle much more than the straight white man in the audience is. And I think that's, that is to experience the fullness of the potential of cinema as a, you know, empathy creating machine. And that's a privilege. And I want that privilege for white audiences, white male audiences or white, you know, whatever the, however we're conceptualising it as well. God, yeah. I mean, it, it's a conversation that I feel like a lot of people don't want to have, but that's such a nice way of framing it, of like, you get the opportunity yeah. to step outside yourself. Yeah, and we we deserve the opportunity to see, you know, more direct versions of ourselves represented as well, of course. But like, I think it's important to think about representation in more, in, in, in a wider kind of way as well. Yeah, and I mean, part of the, the like, it's, it's nice that you said just then that it's a lot of people don't want to talk about it, because that's so true. And I think part of the, the reason for writing the book and part of the way, I, the reason I've tried to make it funny and use lots of examples that people will have seen and will, will love and, and like, and to just infuse it with passion for film and TV and not make it like a telling people off for watching bad racist movies and enjoying them kind of exercise. I want it to kind of lubricate the conversation, if you like, for people to feel more comfortable about talking about race and, you know, accepting that they might say something a bit dodgy and offend someone but then they can apologize and learn from that mistake and move forward and and that's the only way we're actually gonna move the conversation on and truly be anti-racist in our actions is if we're actually not unafraid to have the conversation and we can do it well that's a beautiful point to end on i mean it does seem a shame that we're now going into (laughs) a film (laughs) a lily white uh, movie but uh, exercising our empathy muscles once again though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's get into the iron claw join our community of film lovers by becoming a little white lies member you'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of little white lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism search little white lies membership via your search engine and click through to our steady aq page for a detailed breakdown of the plans now on to the movies The Iron Claw is the true story of the Von Erich brothers, who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s, but faced insurmountable tragedy along the way. Uh, Haffer, when we knew that it was the new Zach Afron film, we knew that uh, you'd probably, you know, hunt us down if we didn't get you on to talk about it. Um, yeah, have we, been, have we been underestimating Mr. Efron all these years? I feel really bad that Ellen just spoke so beautifully about such important issues. And you're like, no, resident Zac Efron girl. <laughs> Coming in. Um, but yes, I have been dangerously obsessed with Zac Efron from a very formative age. High School Musical was very important to my um, teenagehood years. And I'm still a fierce defender of it to this day. I think if someone told me you can speak to Steven Spielberg or Kenny Ortega I would have to shamelessly say Kenny Ortega sometimes but still I think that at this point 20 years after High School Musical first came out oh my god 18 years since the first one there has still hasn't been many 
worthy opportunities for Zac Efron to showcase a wide range of acting abilities that they're not just connected to this idea of a romantic heartthrob or that interweave back into the sort of performative sexuality or or the space that he occupied for so long and really just a role that would define him leaving this idea of youth and teenage heartthrob and into more adult fully formed roles even though he played Ted Bundy quite recently still feels like a very like a film that was made to be seen by very young guys in some ways um and and I've loved his work in in many other films across uh, around the years I love 17 again um and I think he's always such a, a fun presence on the screen but I've been rooting for for a role like this to come to him and I think he did wonderfully when I first saw him and and those photos of him with that odd shaped hair and the the buff muscles in those little tight outfits for a second I was kind of worried it would come into the dangerous waters of pastiche in a way but at the same time I really trust Sean Darkin not all of his films have worked for me but I do think he's a very competent very skilled director and, and really able to understand the nuance of human relationships in a way that I don't think many people have been able to navigate the story. So yeah, I think Zac Efron is the beating heart of this film. I think he's truly impressive in his grasp of grief that doesn't fully dilute or kill a notion of a future and, and this unrelentless grief the story we were just about to to go into the film and I had no idea that this story existed in the world and that it was real and that it had even more grief than the film <laughs> showcases um, I think the, the notion that Sean Durkin had to cut back on even more loss and death to make this believable for the screen just showcases how utterly devastating the story is and still there are moments at the beginning of this film that are so touching and beautiful of brotherly and, and human connection I come from a big family and, and I think seeing these characters being allowed those moments of, of happiness and camaraderie are, are really lovely but I digress anyway yeah I, I was very impressed by it I didn't know anything about it really um, I don't know much about the world of wrestling or this kind of incredible family of wrestling superstars um, like Ellen when you were coming into it were you, were you a WWE person like, like no I did write a story once about the lady wrestlers of Oxfordshire so I knew a bit about like this this kind of contrast between the you know the performative aspect of, of, of that kind of pro wrestling ironically called pro wrestling because it is the, the theatrical aspect of it but the way that wrestlers themselves very proudly talk up the real athleticism involved as well and it's, it's a weird kind of mix and and the exact line is kind of a jealously guarded secret you know when it spills over into setup and when it's actually a real fight but which I think the movie deals with quite well so I knew about that I didn't know about the um Von Erich specifically I knew Zac Efron could act because I am one of the few people who saw him playing the serial killer Ted Bundy in Extremely Wicked and Shockingly Vile which is an ethically very questionable film but it does certainly prove that he can act and more than moreover that he can kind of leverage his sort of teeny bopper heartthrob public persona to add depth to his performance which I think he's doing here as well like when you start that that initial shot that you see of him when he's um waking up in this incredibly childlike bedroom you know in a twin bed next to his brother with sort of 
I don't know what but it looks like cartoon characters on his duvet spread but but the contrast of that with this incredibly almost parodically muscular body manly grown-up man's body it is it, it sort of encapsulates that kind of Zac Efron persona in one shot I think and the physical transformation is is very impressive in this movie but it's more than that it's a really it is a really good performance yeah I, I would have put um Zac Efron in that category of face that knows what an iPhone is but I did think he was very, it, the, the sort of period detailing was so, felt kind of so specific and combined with, I think, the way that Sean Deacon kind of composes, particularly the, the wrestling scenes, that even the sort of extremities of like 80s styling, like it, it really worked for me. I mean, one of my notes was Jeremy Allen White haircut is a jump scare. <laughs> but it, it felt very like of the time. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe this is more of a comment about how good The Nest is, Sean Durkin's previous film with period detail. But for me, that's kind of the one drawback or the one kind of question mark I had about this film is that, and it's so difficult with period films and with, biopics and I've had this conversation about other films I've seen recently as well but that kind of inherent ridiculousness of the wig wearing and the British actors doing you know these good old boy so down home ticks and accents and that kind of thing like it, for me it occasionally struggled to overcome that not in Zac Efron's performance notably and I don't think really in Jeremy Allen White's one but like it, maybe it's just because the, the, for me the period detailing the nest was so good that this kind of slightly fell off but that would that was a slight drawback for me. I think it also, um, it's interesting that you're saying this because at the same time, I just considered it to be an extension of the performance in the ring, that these people are all just performing in their real life. They have become so intertwined with that idea of having to present themselves to the world as something very specific, that this just seeps in, in their family life, in the way that they interact with one another. And I knew so little about wrestling. I think, to me, I knew about Lucha Libre. This is the kind of wrestling that I was familiar with, the very Mexican, um, very Latino kind of wrestling. And when I started reading about the stories that come out of this world, there's so much sorrow that comes from those intertwined lives of performer and real person. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Although I was also very distracted by the hair, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because so much of it is based around this like relationship they have with uh, a sort of domineering patriarch who ranks them just as sort of the industry ranks them. Like their worth is never sort of ever disconnected from what's going on in the ring. I've seen it described as like a comment on... Um toxic masculinity and I mean and you can definitely see that in the father's relationship to the to his sons and this whole thing about never let anyone see you crying and, and um but for me like the eye the eye and claw itself which the, the which is the wrestling move that the movie takes its title from it's the perfect metaphor for, for the kind of uselessness of that kind of male provider like I think as the Kevin's character Zach Efron's character recognizes from the very beginning of the film there's a real like um, sympathy for his father what his father's trying to do is give them the tools they need to protect themselves in a really hard world that's going to throw all kinds of tragedy and struggle at them which it absolutely did and for him that is wrestling and 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 sort of overt macho-ness and muscle building and being able to look after yourself physically and yet it does it doesn't really work because it doesn't protect you you know and then the mum has a similar thing like she's equally emotionally repressed which is why I don't think toxic masculinity kind of sums it up but her thing is more the church and that will save you from the you know degradations of the world, which again, it doesn't. But like it, it's all kind of summed up by the iron claw, which is this very theatrical move in the ring, but actually 
does nothing. You know, it doesn't protect you. It's it's a sort of meaningless thing. It's not a cope. It's not a functional coping mechanism to deal with the world and and the, and the struggles that are presented. So so I, so I kind of think it's not really about toxic masculinity as such, but more the sort of generational trauma and the ways that in the, the sort of horrible tragedy, which is every family's tragedy, I think, which is the very thing that your parents try and teach you to protect you is often the thing that gets you hurt the most. And um, I think that the, what you're saying about the parenthood in this film, to me, is the most effective um, narrative today of all, because... Hope McLenny is so incredible in this as, those, as that archetypal American dad who wants nothing more than for his children to fulfill his dreams. And it becomes this relationship that is so hard to grasp because there is love, but there's so many expectations. And I think especially with wrestling, which I've learned is very generational. Like you have children that, that continue on and, and there's a legacy really, is a legacy sport. It just seems like it works as such a wonderful parallel to investigate this notion of Americana that really puts itself into dads that expect their children to to be out in the world fulfilling their dreams and and Hope McLean is absolutely incredible. He's terrifying. His presence is terrifying. You you feel his frame fill in the room and you're just yeah, so gripped by him. Like I think he's great. And I think him against the certain softness from Zac Efron, um, the way that he just crunches his shoulders and he makes himself so small, even though he's so big, is, is really beautiful. I love when doing scenes together. Mm. It's the contrast of the dad's kind of gruffness and total lack of any w- emotional warmth or support or encouragement for his sons with the, with their own support of each other and really loving, encouraging relationship is, is really, it's really effective, isn't it? Yeah, it is an interesting idea about like how there's so much kind of self-mythologizing going on within their industry and within the ring, but because they've got this sense so early on that we are cursed that in a way that sort of guarantees their fate like they almost all believe that this is going to happen to them so they might as well not fight it i believe in family curses <laughs> i think they're real and it's not superstition it's i think it's again this idea of it's just an acknowledgement of generational trauma and that just recognizing the devastating impact that kind of broken familial bonds or neglectful or emotionally damaged parents who are emotionally damaged themselves like have on their children and on the next generation that's what a family curse is really and I love that one of my favorite aspects of this film is quite subtle certainly early on although it really kind of comes to bloom in the final scenes of the film but this sort of magical realism element like this is a film in which you see ghosts you know and I think that's really a really kind of beautiful way of talking about and the family curse itself is another aspect of that kind of magical realism of talking about things that actually we all really understand but sometimes don't have the language for or or, you know, are confusing and, and these kinds of superstitious ideas are quite neat ways of trying to wrap our heads around things that are, you know, like why tragedy would happen. And in a way, I think this is why the character Lily James is so clever, because it's showing very matter-of-factly that the way to break family curses is to introduce someone who hasn't seen those patterns before and therefore isn't doomed to repeat them. Of course, she's constrained by by the entire family and, and the things that are happening, but the entire time she's just going, oh, you can just not do this. <laughs> it's as easy as that. What if you don't? Which is interesting. Well, 
We should get some scores on this before we move on. Much more to discuss. Hafa, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I think my anticipation was a solid four because I love Zac Efron as established. And I thought the combination of all the boys of today and Zac coming together to do to do film about wrestling and uh, family was really interesting. Enjoyment, surprisingly enough, this is a film that hasn't fully worked for me in, in pacing and um, I did struggle a little bit with the film itself so I think enjoyment would be a three and in retrospect also a three I think there's incredibly solid performances and I think it's grasped of the family itself and and all that we spoke about of generational trauma and guilt is really interesting but some of the other elements pacing wise I think um have not been as uh, effective for me as in other Shandorkin films like The Nest have been in the past. Helen, what about you? In anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I think in anticipation of three, I wasn't particularly eager to see it. I mean, I loved The Nest, but I hadn't really been thinking about Sean Durkin's film much since then. So, so uh, and you know, I'm not a Zac Efron obsessive. <laughs> so three, watching it up to a four, there were moments, I kind of remained sort of slightly dry-eyed through, let's say, the first third of it um, and was sort of wondering why everyone was going on about this movie a little bit. But by the end of it, uh, it really got me and I really, it all all the sort of plot threads came together and I begin to understand this kind of tone of the performances and appreciate it more. So four in enjoyment and I think four in retrospect too, for the similar reasons. Yeah, I think I'm probably about the same three in anticipation. For some reason, I thought I was going to go see a kind of heartwarming sports underdog movie, which, you know, because it's something about the timing of the release felt like, oh, this is the sort of feel good fair that like, might do well in awards season or something. Uh, so yeah, I for an enjoyment, for in retrospect, I was pretty floored by it. I spent hours afterwards reading absolutely everything about the real life cases. And yeah, I then rewatched it knowing everything about them and knowing exactly what was going to happen. And um, I think it works with really well with kind of both levels of knowledge coming into it. Next up, I got to chat with director Jeannie Finley and the subject of her documentary, the wonderful writer and podcasting icon, Aubrey Gordon. We need to go. <laughs> it's a joy to meet you. And it's also like, frankly, given the media landscape around mm. fat stuff, I would much rather talk to someone who's familiar with the work than someone who is not and is like predisposed to be resistant or rejecting of it, right? Like it feels mm. like there's a pathway in when someone's like, I've heard a little bit about this, or you've sort of got a foothold in the conversation. So mm. I, I was reading your work when you were like anonymous, uh, just oh, as you, it's, um, you know, as tiny things off as like your fat friend, but I'm wondering when did you you become uh, first aware of Aubrey's work? So I was one of the people that read her first article and I'd already been making a film about fatness for about a year mm-hmm. and, you know, I'd been doing a bunch of research and so I sort of figured, yeah, I'm go- I can do uh, an essay doc. I'm going to be the female Adam Curtis. <laughs> and so I was going to make an essay doc about fatness and I started doing research, looking at clothing and what, and then I sort of realised, hey, I don't want to make it about the. I want to make it about politics and Anyway, I read, I was one of those people that read Aubrey's piece in the first week. And then I think we started talking quite quickly mm-hmm. after that. And initially, I asked Aubrey to write the soundtrack, not soundtrack, what is it called? A voiceover. voiceover. <laughs> so Aubrey was going to write the voiceover for this essay film. 
And then I went out to Portland, filmed with Aubrey, and there was this sort of big disconnect between this very intimate and emotional inside voice that's mm. her writing and then also the full-throated, big laughing person that I met in Aubrey Gordon, not your fat friend. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And then when I met Aubrey's family and they were struggling to say the word fat, I was like, oh, yeah. Because I'm always looking for the gap mm-hmm. in if I'm making a film where's it gonna go you know and I was sort of kidding myself in making an essay film I mean who was I kidding I like making I like making films about the messy stuff of families and how that plays out in real life you know like in Seahorse Freddie McConnell's a trans guy wanting to have a baby what's that like in his life yeah with his mum what does it mean to get pregnant so when I met Aubrey it was like oh yeah what's this like for her as a person in the world. I absolutely adore Seahorse. I mean, with like, you know, you're putting a huge amount of trust to kind of with your story. Was seeing Seahorse something that kind of like helped you make that decision? Absolutely no question. I think particularly as someone who had done a lot of organizing uh, with trans communities, there are so many pitfalls for those stories to to fall into. Mm -hmm. And it felt really incredibly meaningful that that film so gracefully sort of skated through all of the potential pitfalls and really, really, really centered the sort of human people at the center of the story. I would also say watching The Great Hip Hop Hoax, which could absolutely have been a very sensationalized story, watching Orion, The Man Who Would Be King, which also could have been a very sensationalized story, and seeing how Genie's choices allowed their stories to breathe and to be a little more human and a little less like, get a load of these guys! Can you believe it? (laughs) Which would be very easy to do. (laughs) Um, And it felt really meaningful to see um, stuff like that play out in a way that felt like it held a whole lot more nuance, a whole lot more tenderness. And in that way, felt like very related to the writing I was doing at the time, right? Like, it felt like there was sort of an alignment between Jeannie's voice as a filmmaker and my voice as a writer in a really nice way. Yeah, when I read that first piece, I was just like, oh, here's someone who's making their personal political and they're putting themselves into this. And I really felt an emotional connection in a way that I hadn't in any... Like, I I filmed a bunch of uh, plus-size bloggers, but it was... It was too distra- clothing's too distracting. Mm. I'm interested in what are the what role does bias play in the way that we understand our fellow humans? How does that play out in doctors' offices? How does that play out in the meaningful relationships in our life? And I sort of wasn't getting that when I was talking to people about clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was an opportunity to go a bit deeper. And also, you know, anonymity. I've made the Orion's a bad guy who wears a mask, so obviously I was all in. <laughs> yeah, you're like a masked performer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, sort of, we're sort of starting the film in a place where you're in relative anonymity. And then, you know, of course, the podcast, but also your book deal. And then now it's like fully the document. I mean, like, what's that process been like for you? I mean, harrowing, I'm sure. (laughs) How how has it been like becoming more and more the kind of public face of the thing of of your words? Yeah, uh, I think there's like a fair amount of like emotional whiplash with Mm -hmm. it, particularly as a fat woman 
in her late 30s, now 40. Previously, when people would look at me or stare at me on the street, that meant that they were about to say or do something horrific, right? That that meant that they were going to take my picture and post it on the internet to make fun of it, or that they were going to say something horrible to me, or that they were going to recommend a weight loss surgeon. Just like a stranger on the street came up to me and was like, there's a weight loss clinic right up the road. Like, no hello, (laughs) no nothing, right? Buy me a drink. (laughs) (laughs) What's your name? (laughs) Yeah. I have that horrible today. Yeah, <laughs> totally. uh, but like to go from that to wait a minute, this person might be looking at me because they know who I am or mm-hmm. they've seen my work or whatever. I feel like my nervous system is still catching up yeah. <laughs> to that. Like uh, people noticing me in my physical body is not necessarily like a sign of bad things. Right. That, that feels like the biggest emotional growth spurt that's happening for me at the moment. And working with each other, I mean, mm-hmm. is there much in terms of a, like, divide over the Atlantic in terms of the way the, these, like, anti-fat biases, like, come up? Or, you know, obviously healthcare is very different on either side of these things, yeah. but they seem very similar to me. I think bias shows up in personal relationships in very similar okay. ways, but I would say that the size level, the bias and just terrible behaviour kicks in mm-hmm. in the UK is a lot lower so you're going to hear a lot of terrible, you know, I'm a small fat lady. Mm. And by that, I'm I'm describing myself as a fat lady, but I'm recognising that there's privilege attached to the fact that I, I do not get the same drama from doctors. I mean, I get my fair share of drama. <laughs> I get the big plate out and they... Yeah. Just, they start describing what a protein is. It's like, you guys, I'm not a dummy. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. (laughs) Could you go into a little more depth? Could you explain what a diet you said? Pardon me, a carbohydrate? (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I think that the size that that kicks in in the UK is a lot lower. Mm. But, you know, it's it's just... variations on a theme. Yeah, I mean, I think you all are lapping us in terms of access to healthcare, as as is known to you all and the whole wide world. Yeah, we got other problems. <laughs> and at the same time, I think anti-fatness shows up in healthcare in mm-hmm. a great deal of ways. I mean, I think the one that I um, very frequently think of is Boris Johnson getting uh, diagnosed with COVID and saying, the answer to this is not for everyone to wear a mask. The answer for this is for everyone to take one to five years to lose weight is our COVID prevention strategy, right? Like the math on that does not add up. Um, So it just feels like it has seeped into, in many, many, many places, certainly the US and certainly the UK, it has seeped into our interpersonal relationships. It has seeped into our healthcare provision. It has seeped into our policy. Mm -hmm. It has seeped into our media representation, right? That like at almost every turn, we are telling fat people that they are lesser than, that they don't deserve services, and they don't get access to those things unless and until they lose weight, which we know is nigh on impossible for most of us, right? According to the National Institutes of Health in the United States, uh, someone my size has a 0.8% chance of attaining their BMI recommended weight in their lifetime. So assuming that there is a 99.2% chance that I stay this size, then what? then what do we want to do with that, right? If we stop haranguing people to do something that we know is not fully possible, then 
what changes in our perspective about this? And that feels much more interesting to me. It's just assuming that fat people are here and will continue to be here. What do we do with that? Mm -hmm. Rather than going, we got to make them all thin. Right. <laughs> right? Like, what else does that look like? What does our present tense look like mm -hmm. instead of this sort of fantasy future land? One of the moments of the, I mean, it's just a small moment, but I, you're talking to Michael Hobbs and he says something along the lines of like that his expertise is taken a little bit more seriously than yours. Almost. Mm. It's just like, you know, that it's like, it's almost like the skinny person has to be considered to be the objective uh, expert. Is, has that been like the case of, at all with like making the film for you, where it's just like assume that you don't have a clear eyed view on this, even though you have like the most incredible stats and science to back up everything you say? Um, you know, I mean, it's an anxiety for me that people won't take the film seriously. Uh, but then I remember that this is my ninth feature film. It's not my first time at the rodeo, so fuck them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> God, put that on a T-shirt. That's, <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, your profile's like risen, of course, across mm -hmm. like not just the journey the film uh, covers, but like since. Like, do you feel that your expertise is being taken more seriously nowadays? Uh, I would say yes, and there is always a ceiling to that mm -hmm. for a fat person talking about fat stuff, right? That uh, a thin person um, saying the same thing will be applauded until the end of time, right? <laughs> like, uh, for their courage in saying so. And a fat person saying very similar things will receive death threats and will receive, like, incredible sort of blowback for, again, like, doing and saying the same things as thinner people might do or say about fatness. Um, so that feels like it is ever present that there are definitely people who approach me and my work as you're just telling yourself a story to make yourself feel better I think is sort of the narrative that folks have and I can't change that for folks uh, it feels like work that you can really only come to any kind of fat justice or liberation work is work that you can only come to when you're ready to get there and nobody can make you be comfortable with the word fat or make you be comfortable spending time around fat folks or make you feel more comfortable in your own body image or any of that sort of stuff right like that is all internally driven and until folks are in a place where they're open to hear it uh they might hear it from thin people but they're definitely not going to hear it from fat people unfortunately I mean, I would say that, I, that like, just speaking to both friends that are familiar with your work and then mm -hmm. also after the screening, because I saw this for the first time at Edinburgh, I do ah. feel that you are changing things. I think a lot of people that, I, you know, I speak to feel like they feel very transformed by their relationships with their bodies and, and you, you know, the way that they're viewed in the world by this. And the thing I've heard a million times is just like, I just wish I'd watched this or, or listened to this or read this when I was a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's wonderful to hear. That's totally wonderful I'm to hear. Yeah, I'm sure you've had that before. <laughs> sure. And also, I think, you know, resistance on this topic runs deep, mm -hmm. you know? And I think every single one of us has many, many layers of this stuff to work through, mm -hmm. right? Your own internal body image is one part of it. Accessing the healthcare and services that you need is another part of it. Um, how you treat people who are fatter than you, regardless of your size, is another part of it, right? Like, so it feels like sort of no matter who we are, we'll have resistance in one or more of those places, right? And for folks who have worked through their resistance in one or more of those places, those seem like the folks who are like, oh, right, I really am unsatisfied with my body image. I really am unsatisfied with how I've been told to feel about my body. Mm. Maybe I could go down this road, <laughs> right? Um, those feel like the folks who are like coming along. And that feels extremely exciting. 
I think something I think about as well is there's a bit in the film towards the end where Aubrey says, I get all these messages from people all the time asking me, how do I cope with this? How do I do this? How do I fix my body image or whatever? And she says, I don't know. I'm in it too. And I think about that. And I think about the tenderness in that moment for me in the film. And it makes me sort of feel like, yeah, it's okay. We're all... We're all works in progress, and I think it's okay to say, I'm just figuring this out. But for myself, speaking personally, what I want more than anything is to live in the present tense. You know, I don't weigh myself anymore, and that's been a whole journey through making the film as my politics have sharpened. It just feels stupid. Why would I do that? You know, and I started powerlifting last year. But when I engaged the trainer, I said, I don't want to discuss my weight. I want to be strong. And so the focus is like, how much can I lift? (laughs) What's that feel like? Rather than having a discussion about how much do I weigh? So I felt very clear-eyed going into that relationship and I set the boundaries of that. And I can see people around me starting to do stuff like that. It's those little incremental things where you set the boundaries of, like, this is the discussion we're having. We also talked about this at the time when you started lifting (laughs) and you were like fat people are strong yeah and i was like yeah man every time i stand up that's a 300 pound leg press <laughs> do, do you know what i mean like yeah. we are carrying around a whole lot more and i think that that sort of strength uh, yeah. gets underestimated yeah, including yeah. by fat people mm-hmm. for sure it feels really fucking good though mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something really heavy above my head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There was an Olympic weightlifter um, from the U.S., I believe her name was Holly Mangold, who is about my size Mm. and was in the Olympics and I believe medaled in the Olympics. And the media around her win was not, yay, look who won the Olympics. (laughs) It was, we're really worried about her health. Oh my God. A literal Olympic athlete team. Like, I don't really know what else we need here, Mm. except I totally do, right? (laughs) Except it's like totally obvious. It's like, here's my life's work. Absolutely. (laughs) But it it is a really, really tricky thing. And I think you're right. It plays out very differently for women and for men. There is still plenty, plenty for men to contend with. There is more uh, for trans people of any gender than for cis people of any gender. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's uh, through the roof for trans people. But, like, yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, this is a film podcast. This is a brilliant film. Um, like, in terms of, like, cinema itself, uh, documentaries, and like, where do you think representation needs to go in that direction? Because I watched Wonka a couple of weeks ago and I thought mm. it was delightful. And, like, when they brought out the fat suit, like, my heart just, like, goes into yeah. my shoe. I can't believe we're still doing it. What would you like to see less of and more of? I mean, I I share your views on Wonka. I I almost put Paddington Two in my top ten for the BFI <laughs> for the sight and sound. I was, I was close to top ten. It was it was probably about number twelve. Um, but I was so excited to see Wonka, mm-hmm. and you know, Roald Dahl. He he's a special case in terms of. <laughs> The way that he treats people but like uh, with the fat suit I was like come on guys mm. this is so tiresome and I saw a really disappointing interview with Olivia Coleman where she was saying I'm playing an evil character so I get to wear a lovely fat suit nice and evil nice and fat and I think what I'd like to see is evil and fat 
not automatically being synonymous with each other because it's just so boring. But what I would say is Divine Joy Randolph is... What a great name because she is a joy to watch in absolutely everything. She's fully present tense. She Mm -hmm. never feels like a doer-upper, a project. Mm -hmm. She's just herself. She takes up space and she's a magnificent actress. Mm -hmm. I just want to watch her in everything. So I want to see more people where they're just living their lives rather than their the fat sidelined character mm-hmm. yeah. the fat funny character i want to see more despicable not despicable but i want to see in the same way with queer representation you just don't want it to be mm-hmm. one way mm-hmm. i want a whole sort of breadth of fat representation yeah let's just see all different kinds of fat people not just tokens or evil characters yeah i would say um there is almost no reason to use a fat suit mm. in a film the reasons to use a fat suit are in a film are because you are telling stories that fat people would not tell about themselves, right? Because you need a thin person to dress up <laughs> as a fat person in order to tell it. I think in terms of where fat representation is moving, I was in high school and college when like Norbit and Shallow Hal and the many sort of like Fairly Brothers, Eddie Murphy, like fat suit sort of comedies uh, came around. At the time, they were big hits. People today think of them as relatively tasteless, but at the same time, think of The Whale and Oscar, which is straightforwardly imagined body horror Mm -hmm. of what it would mean to be a fat person without the participation of anyone the size of that character in that film, right? So it feels like I would love to be able to say fat representation is moving in a solidly good direction. But I'm like, I don't know, it used to be blockbuster comedies and now it's an Oscar winning film. It feels like it's being sort of prestigified (laughs) rather than rejected wholesale. And I would really, really like to see folks stand up for what does it mean to let fat folks tell our own stories? What does it mean to cast fat people in fat roles? Like, what would all of that look like? I mean, I think famously Darren Aronofsky said, well, we thought about casting a fat person, but they couldn't physically have done it. And I was like, the movie is sitting on a couch. (laughs) (laughs) What could they not have done? (laughs) (laughs) I think they were like, we shot it in 28 days or something. Yeah. So like, I I would just love to see folks pushing back more Mm. on that kind of Mm. very facile thinking that if you spend five to 10 seconds with it, you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) hang on a second. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it feels like, you know, there are real bright spots of fat folks doing incredible work. I think much of that is in comedy. I think Mm -hmm. Nicole Byer is a gift to the world. I think Sophie Hagen is a joy on this planet. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are so many folks who are sort of doing that work mostly as stand-ups or solo storytellers um, because it can be so hard to sort of move up the ladder with a fat story about fat people. I mean, just... As an author, the number of people that I sent book proposals to who would write back and say things like, um, it's really well written. Could we do it without saying fat? Like, could we write this book without you using the word fat? And I was like, why would we do that? And who would that be for? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that kind of stuff is ever present. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think folks who are not fat have a greater sense of, like, ebb and flow of that than folks who are fat who are like, nope. Going to the doctor still stinks. Right? Like, <laughs> nope, I'm still watching fat suits and movies. Right? All of that sort of stuff feels like we got a ways to go. We do. I'm hopeful. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you both so much. Oh. 
Your Fat Friend is now out in cinemas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Pascalites with our precarious present in Steve McQueen's Occupied City, adapted from the book Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam 1940 to 1945, written by Bianca Stedger. McQueen's documentary creates two interlocking portraits, a door-to-door excavation of Nazi occupation that still haunts his adopted city, and a vivid journey through the last years of the pandemic and protest. Before we get into the film, I spoke to Steve McQueen and Bianca Stitger about their film. Worth noting that several of McQueen's artworks are referenced throughout, so if you don't know what Year 3, Ashes and Grenfell are, it's worth giving them a quick Google. Personally, for me, it's... huge thing you know being from an occupied city how do you feel like cities are transformed by occupation because something like i'm thinking you know like mangrove you can see the literal craters of what has been left over from the war but like amsterdam has a very different relationship with how that period has played out like how do you feel like it was transformed by its occupation well obviously a a very large part of the population was um, murdered Mm -hmm. so there were uh, there were whole streets where all the the houses stood empty and that even happened more that the houses of of people who were deported uh, Jewish people were deported were then stripped of their uh, wood for people to burn in their stoves during the hunger winter. So a lot of those houses after the war. Then the city government decided not to rebuild them. So, you know, the whole fabric of the city was affected in that sense. There's now, for instance, you still see parts of Amsterdam where there's a kind of very broad alley, almost a, a boulevard highway right through the city center. And then if you know, then you know how, why that happened. Mm-hmm. That is a result of what happened in the war. But of course, let's say in the, in the years just after war, people, people know that. But that kind of knowledge, of course, the longer it is a code, the more people will not know why that street, why suddenly there is such a wide street in the middle of the center. So in that sense, yes, it affects it. But a lot of those effects are then, the reason behind them are forgotten 
And, and like you grew up in the city, you're coming to it, you know, a little bit later in life as somebody that moved to Amsterdam. Do you think that that was more striking in some ways for you? Like the way that like the occupation had like made its mark on this place? It's very big. It was, it was very, I think that's the first thing that got me into thinking about a project uh, just because of the invisibility, but the actual presence you could you could feel the presence, you could smell the presence, but you couldn't see the presence. And somehow I wanted to visualize that through a camera using film. Uh, uh, I think that was very much the reason why I wanted to make the, you know, the, the film. There's this incredible ambition with it, where um, in like both in the book and then you know now in the film, where you're looking at so many different people, so many different stories. You're kind of you know, surveying this, like, entire city. Conceptually, what was important about kind of almost not leaving any story left behind, like, to actually pick up on every single one of them? Well, I think the book is very different from the film. I think the book is encyclopedic, Mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, 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 You know, but there's there's a certain kind of... um, a poetic, a poeticness to that nature of, of it. It's not just sort of, you know, it's not just it's sort of bombarding you, but it's giving you a structure in a way. And I think the film, well, I tend to do do, do the film is, is to give the view of the weight of it. Some things you'll be able to you take, and other things you just you just look at the images and, and, and rather than listening to the the, the, uh, the the dialogue. But that overwhelmingness is just like going to a classical concert, mm-hmm. where you, you 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 bring yourself to a situation where you 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 know you, you you can never hold on to all of it. But this is this is why it was a hand in glove situation for this particular subject matter because as Bank as I said I said often, you know, the more you know, the less you know. You can't hold all of it in your head, but that's part of the sort of experience of it because it's not a history lesson; it's a meditation. You are allowed to sort of, you know, hold on to sort of an image rather than what the person's saying, or hold on to some uh, a memory in your head. But because it, what it does is, is 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 a picture provokes so many things emotionally. Yeah, and I think you know the, the, that hundred thirty addresses that are in the the film. Um, there are many more, and I think the film conveys somehow that this is just the top of the iceberg, basically. But that everywhere the camera roams, there would there is another story um, mm. waiting in the in the wings. And it's important to say we shot, I shot and edited all two thousand addresses, mm-hmm. but we edited the, the feature film down to thirty, one hundred and thirty, and then you know I'll do something else with those two thousand addresses later. Yeah, I mean, there's been talk of this, like, 36-hour cut of this film. I mean, where where did you make the decision as to the ones that would? And were there any particular stories that you... Um, I think it's, it's a very formal thing. Certain things are, are repeated, certain things are very similar, and the things are one... You know, sometimes you, you have to put certain things in, in which work very work for the feature film in, in, in that four-hour feature and better than you, it would do it in other places. And there's certain things you have to sort of leave behind because not everything can fit in the feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, it's not a case of time limit, but at the same time, you want to push beyond a moment to break into something else. So again, it's, it's, it's about sort of... It, you know, yeah, we were lucky to have the opportunity to have the choice... That's what made the film the film because we I had think everything. that because you filmed everything, yes. there was a wealth of material yes. to choose from that would never, never have happened if you only no. 
filmed 130 addresses you exactly. started with, then it would have been a not as uh, rich film, I no. think. I absolutely adored the film, but like previously talking to you, you, you mentioned this incredible story about the guy that goes and pricks, I think, cherries or strawberries. <laughs> um, and, and like that seems to me to be such a incredible document of like the passive person who doesn't stand up in the face of evil the person that we all wish that we wouldn't be mm-hmm. like but in, the, in the time you know we don't know if we'd be that person you can't know i mean in, in everyone retrospecting okay oh sugar i would have done that i should have done that but there aren't too many people have put their hands up saying to us you know the, the mm-hmm. mother or father or member of, of the nazi party right now well, I guess it's that difficult thing because mm. I think maybe something like 12 Years a Slave that people take comfort in being like they would be the kind slave master like a Benedict Cumberbatch and not appreciate that that's actually kind of the worst person that you could possibly exactly. be. Exactly, 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 exactly. If that maybe about that, that's for sure. One would hope that when you watch the movie that's the kind of thoughts that go through your head because it's the images are of now when you hear the stories you it, it makes it somehow easier to to imagine hey these people on the screen um and the people from the past they're the same mm-hmm. therefore i am the same too it becomes like a mirror do you then feel that like also you end up having this like profound like responsibility for the people of the past because I'm just thinking like you know D- David Kurtz in um, Three Minutes or you know like Solomon Northrup or you know even um, you know the stuff of like Mangrove or um, or Grenfell or something like do you feel a weight with your work in terms of like I want like, the weight I want the responsibility yeah. I've always looked for it I've always bizarre I don't know why I've always looked for that always looked for responsibility I always wanted that load for sure put it on my shoulders I always wanted it mm-hmm. always never feared it for me when I was doing the research the, the most difficult thing was when I couldn't find any information about someone except that he was born and, 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 and murdered for being Jewish and I couldn't find so you can't keep someone even in a in a work of, of a memorial you only have a name so that that was the thing that made was very hard for me to accept. So do you then view yourself as being part of, like, not letting that exist? Like, you won't just let people be a number. Like, you are actually going to make them... That was one of, the, one of the... Absolutely the things that you can try to make this, this abstract number of, of six million uh, people uh, murdered, make people realise that it was... They were all individuals, men, women, children from all types and kinds, and not one abstract number, but each a person. At what point did you kind of identify like the cinematic potential of this? Because I mean, you both worked across like different forms, different mediums. Like, at what point did this seem to be something that should exist? It happened at different points because Bangers, you know, she was working on books. 2005 and for me obviously as a visual person I was thinking about uh, something else I mean again it was we weren't even thinking of the same thing we're thinking of two different things completely mm-hmm. I was thinking of the past and the present I was thinking okay what happened if I had to get a, 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 some footage from 1940 and follow the camera identically to that footage so you could reinforce the buildings because it's 17th century city mm-hmm. so basically the buildings would be reinforced but at the same time you have the living and the dead walking into the same frame oh that would be amazing you know, to sort of, somehow I wanted, as I said before, amplify 
uh, aud- visually, but as well, I want to amplify audially and visualize the past in the present. But then next door, I kept on hearing these sort of keys tapping, you know, bangers tapping his keys. Like, mm, maybe the past is text and the present is the present. So you could put the two together and that was it. So two things happening in, in, in the same house but different occasions and this sort of, oh, you can put the two together. My told Bianca. Yeah, and I was first, of course, surprised because this, this book, when you see it, is one of the least likely books to ever be made into a, into a film. That was surprising, but I immediately thought that could, that could be a wonderful idea and a very new approach to, to having a, a film about history. I mean, is it often the case that hearing each other tapping away, but like, do you consult each other a little bit about kind of like the work that you're doing? For sure. Always in conversation. When it comes to um, the locations in the city, like this is a place that you, you know, like made your home. I mean, growing up, but obviously living there, but uh, and, and now as a, I guess a proud Amsterdamian. I'm not sure what the, <laughs> the term is, but like, were there any locations that were like particularly? personal to you that then you had to kind of have these difficult accounts of what happened there particularly difficult accounts but they were personal because like Alex is yeah, our children the, the, the school careers of yeah. our children you can see how yeah. intertwined were the, the, yeah. the, the second yeah. world war still is with nowadays location and uh, our daughter went to a school that was a school building that was was taken by the Germans to um to put the headquarters of their secret police, or the mm. Gestapo, and so it was located there. This was where, where uh, people were interrogated and, and well, tortured. Within the school? In that school oh, building. So they put the school children in another building, and they just took that building to, to, to use it for this uh, uh, purpose. And after the war, it became a school again. And our daughter had a nice, happy, uh, happy school yeah. life. Uh, yeah. But these are the, they were they were in, they were in yeah. classrooms where people were tortured exactly. and interrogated. Yeah. And at the same time, now there yeah. is that that room is about learning and 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 our son, uh, the, the school our son goes to now was uh, was one of the prisons of Amsterdam where the same kind of things happened. So his former school was a Jewish school. Was, was Jewish school before the war and then during the, 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 the war they created a system that all Jewish children had to go to special Jewish schools they weren't allowed to mingle with uh, the other uh, children so that also happened in his uh, school so you can see and then even his kindergarten was in a place where the Amsterdam police battalion was located that was um, a part of, of rounding up um, um, uh, Jews before they were sent to the camps. So, so it's within that, that every and, day, and within our children, all the schools of our was, children was, were was, buildings. Yeah, that, so it's unavoidable. Yeah. And is that something that were, you were aware of beforehand? I mean, is that kind of like part of the living history of like we understand yes. that that's a space? Yes. Okay. Maybe not for, for everyone, but there's oh. a, a plaque oh. in the oh. entrance oh. of the yeah. school. Yeah. Well, if you want to know, you know. If you don't want to yeah. know, you don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah. People don't bother with it, so other people do. Yeah, because I remember uh, the two of you told me that like when you went to Solomon Northrop's, the place there that's where right. he was, that's, right. um, that's, right. that's very much like an erased bit of history. Like, totally. We, we actually campaigned to get uh, a, a plaque. Yes. 
on 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 the building where the slave pen was, which is now I think it's U.S. military uh, airport aviation, a, aviation, aviation. aviation. It's kind of an aviation building, mm-hmm. and also the, the 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 hotel that he was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. The building, the building is still there, but the, the location that we know the location was no, it's an aviation building now, which is the, the building's not there. But the building where someone was kidnapped in the hotel is still there. But we try to get a plaque on. on, on. And in Amsterdam, for instance, the, the the buildings where the except for that for that building, but a lot of buildings where the where the Germans were, where the that is a thing that is forgotten very quickly because no one will put a memorial for them. So those kind of locations. Um, well, very feared during the war are kind of like that goes out of um, active knowledge, let's say. We're kind of shifting in terms of history where we're kind of going out of living memory yes. for this. Yes. And like, you know, it is it is a big move to go from something that's living memory into Absolutely. what's documented. Mm. So do you kind of view this as being beyond an astonishing film, something that is actually... A significant part of keeping like what actually happened alive. You know, in a in a way, I would say um, um, yes, because also in the voiceover for also for mm-hmm. that reason, I put a lot of direct quotes from from uh, survivors and other people that that lived during that uh, that time. So yes, it's very important, I think, to keep that knowledge um, active somewhere. And also with Melanie, the lady with the voiceover, this sort of young Jewish woman who's giving, who's delivering the text in a, you know, not in an unmanipulative way. She, you know, she's not dictating. She's not ex- authority. She's not an authority. Sure, she is, as Banka said before in the interview, which is beautiful, she said, uh, you know, she, she's sharing this mm-hmm. knowledge. She knows as much as you, and she says it, she finds out. And you share this knowledge together. She's just it's one step in yeah. front of you yeah. on this walk through Amsterdam. Yeah. I love that. Just so beautiful. So it's very emotional, not because I, I can't even say that because I don't want to say it. it's emotional. No, mm. but the responsibility is given to the viewer to take on the, the, the emotions of what she's saying. Yeah, so I think and for important. that reason, it's it's written very no, factual exactly. and it's spoken. Not manip- no one wants to manipulate anybody. Yeah. Not interested. But here's the, the information. Facts speak for themselves. Yes, but what's what, what's optimistic about it is of a woman, a Jewish woman who is of the now. You know, not of the then. There's a future. The, the funny thing is I actually found myself uh, thinking a lot about year three when I was watching mm. it um, mm-hmm. the second time, where it's like this idea of a future or not a future, because year three to me seems yeah. to be so much about like speaking to this like beautiful future and then you're watching right. almost yes. the same yeah. scale of people yes. robbed of it. Very interesting, interesting uh, yeah. thoughts. Oh my yeah. God, I'll use that yeah. picture. I'll, I'll quote you from it. Uh, but it's interesting because in some ways and it's a future that a lot of people don't want to see don't want to put their eyes because mm-hmm. and then when you see the future of London it's black and brown <laughs> but they don't want to see that if it's a future I'm, I think what happened in year three is the first time the future of London has been visually seen I don't think there's ever been a situation where people have had the opportunity to visually see the future of London and there it was there's 75% of the schools in London and on those walls and with the future you know a lot of people didn't like see this is you know it's black and brown that's how it is don't like it but you know 
Well, I'm wondering, like, introducing, we can see even, like, bringing him over to Amsterdam, where you've sort of lived with this occupation your entire life. How was it kind of explaining what it was to live in a place that's constantly filled with, like, memorials of, like, oh, this is the statue, um, this is where somebody was shot, this is where they rounded up people and stuff. I, and, like, did you kind of feel that you tapped into, like, a sort of lingering shame around Amsterdam's occupation? Well, I think for most people, maybe not, because you can pass a monument on your way to work or to school 200 times and still don't know what it is what it is about. It can be, it's like a tree or a, a mm-hmm. stoplight or something like that. But I think for Steve, talking about this with um, with someone from somewhere else gives, of course, a fresh perspective. And then you realize, yeah, hey, yeah, this is actually kind of uh, remarkable or uh, strange. You, so you look at it with, with fresh eyes, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, as a black woman in this field, I think I'm, like, hyper-aware well, of, please, like... When you say black woman in this field, put us in the interview. I hope so. Of course, of course. That's <laughs> fantastic. Little white lines, there you go. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm hyper-aware of, like, the messed up questions that um, black artists get asked and that women get asked. And I'm just wondering whether on this press tour there's been anything that you've been maybe disheartened by because of, like, the line of questionings that you've endured? Because it, it does feel that, like, you're experts in your field, you're acclaimed in your fields, but, like, there's often kind of, like, undermining questions that get asked. That I don't, I you know, I try not to do that, but... Um, not really, I don't think. I never got one, I think. It could have been worse, probably. <laughs> it could have been... <laughs> no, and then there's not no, been any No, that has no... Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think that's generally happened to you? The, the way you you kind of like maybe like had well, the worst, the worst one, the worst one I was on was widows. That was pretty bad. I mean, that you know, some some of the, the the questions that were asked to the cast by these male journalists was pretty was pretty obvious, was, was quite sexist. Mm. And I was very, I was very, and some of the and some of the, re- the reviews, I couldn't believe what some people had said. And it's like, wow, but that that was very. Yeah, that was very that was very uh, illuminating to say the least. Well, I, I I think in the in the in the book, I tried, for instance, to get women, for instance, that were in the resistance or, mm. or female voices a bit to the to the forefront, and I think we tried the same in the film. But I, yeah. I, and I think it's, we've been very fortunate in, in in this case. I mean, it's been great. I think we respect the people for three minutes as well, so therefore coming into this is not, mm-hmm. not, not been a, a, a question. No. So Ellen, Steve McQueen, one of my favourite ever filmmakers, artists, human beings that has ever lived. You came into this, I assume, a bit of a fan? Oh yeah, yeah. I I would also say he's one of my favourites. But I didn't really know what to expect from this because my favourite Steve McQueen films are Small Acts, which is obviously an anthology, maybe an anthology of TV programmes, but let's call it a film, and um, Widows, um, which is mainly because I'm a fan of the the crime genre and he doesn't really tie himself to genre in any way but I just was happy that there was a collision of a favourite filmmaker and a favourite genre so so being that this is kind of very different from all of those it's not set in London which is one of the big things I liked about Small Axe it felt kind of germane to me and my family's experience and it's not you know a genre piece I guess I, I didn't really know whether I would 
love it as much as I did. And did you know much of Bianca Stickler's work? Did you see um, Three Minutes of Lengthening? I did see Three Minutes of Lengthening and liked it a lot and really thought it was interesting the kind of way she was playing with, not even playing, that's too light a word, but exploring duration of, of, of the kind of the, the clip, the material, which is from, it's, it's basically based on some home film footage that a family took when visiting their kind of ancestral village, uh, a Jewish village in Poland, just prior to the start of the Second World War. So that village was basically decimated in the Second World War. So it's this kind of glimpse of, of something that was destroyed by the Holocaust. Um, it's very haunting for that reason. But it's only three minutes in time, but the film itself is something like 82 minutes or something. So they kind of do really interesting things with zooming in on little details and stretching it out and discussing things and talking about the sort of mystery behind it. So, yeah, I, I did really appreciate that. Film. Also, I should say... I am a Londoner married to a Dutch man, so I also kind of appreciate their, their marital relationship. I feel like I've got something in common with um, with Bianca and Steve in that on that level as well. Yeah, what more representation do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's me. In this country, we're always talking about Second World War, or certain sections of this country are anyway, or always thinking about it and, it, and it does, whether we know it or not, weigh heavy on a lot of British families in the way that all history does. But it's eaten in... In the Netherlands, because it was actually occupied by the Nazis, there's a whole different aspect to the way that that history hangs around. And like, I had the opportunity to go to Amsterdam and meet with Steve McQueen and Bianca and, and be taken on a tour around the city and some of the locations in the film from them. And um, one of the things that I was saying to them was, it's funny how everyone's granddad you know, was in the resistance and no one's granddad was fighting with the Nazis when we know actually statistically it's very different. But because I mean, my own family, my um, husband's family, you know, had a relative who was kidnapped and murdered by the Nazi because he was rumoured to be in the resistance. We don't really know what the truth of that was. But my, I guess my point is almost every family in the Netherlands has some kind of very real connection to the Second World War and that period of occupation and lots of that generation who are still alive will not speak about it because it's so horrendously difficult. So this film is so meaningful to me and to, I mean, to, I think to all of us, uh, really, because all of us are in some way descended from the Second World War. I mean, Hafa, like coming from Brazil, I suppose you've, culture, you've got quite a different relationship with it. I mean, were you kind of intrigued to see how Amsterdam has kind of borne the scars of this terrible thing that happened. Yeah, I was just about to say that for me, who was born and raised and spent my entire life in Brazil and whose family is literally a mix of Black people from the Northeast and Indigenous people from the center of Brazil, and you have to go quite deep into my family tree to find European blood. It's really interesting to think about this because I moved to Europe five years ago and I remember walking the campus of Aberdeen University, which is a really old university here in Scotland. And I just stopped for a second and I had this really odd realization that people, white men, were getting diplomas here before my country was deemed a country, before it was, quote, discovered by the Europeans. People were already getting education and and living in this place and this building was already here. And it was such a physical representation of history and the difference in history between a country like Brazil and a country like Scotland and the UK. And I think since then, when I first started traveling, going to cities like Amsterdam, and I just very recently came back from Rotterdam, which was bombed and rebuilt, the conversations that exist around it, from signage to people who, who have an understanding of architecture and, and how things have shaped and changed the way that 
even how you cross the street or how you get to one place to the other has been changed. So it affects your day-to-day life in a way that I had never experienced until I was a full-grown adult who had moved out of Brazil. And um, I've been thinking a lot about the conversations that we have around something like the Holocaust, especially because the zone of interest is, is so high in the public discourse at the moment. And I think there is this hesitation and this trepidation and this fear around responsibility and around lineage that is completely foreign to me, but at the same time affects my understanding of colonization and presence and occupation in ways that are really interesting to think about when it comes to historic parallels. Uh, so so re-watching Occupy City after being so deep into thinking of the zone of interest and even just out of Sundance and watching a film like um, Jesse Eisenberg's A Real Pain, which just premiered at Sundance and is about two Jewish cousins going around um, Poland and, and visiting Auschwitz and, and, and doing this sort of tourism from a comedic and dramatic sort of point of view has me thinking about this more than ever, about the way that people occupy physical spaces, um, sometimes oblivious to, to the historical and, and societal weight that such spaces actually actually have. But yeah, it's been really interesting to think about it. It's interesting that you brought up this idea of like a family curse being something that could be real. And like we've got modern day Amsterdam and, you know, then we're hearing about kind of what essentially two, three generations before happened. I mean, how do you think the film kind of deals with those parallels of like this a, a curse in the city still existing or the ways in which it can be lifted? Well, this is another film which had me seeing ghosts, put it that way. <laughs> because, like, <clears throat> I think I think we should talk about the length of the film, the duration of it. You know, it's interesting that this is another film about the Holocaust which draws attention to its own duration in the way that three minutes are lengthening, in the opposite way to that the three minutes lengthening did. But this is, a this I think it's four hours and 22 minutes, is that right? Yeah, but he has said there is a 36-hour version. There's a 36-hour version, which, you know, may get exhibited in a, in a gallery at some point, but probably not in a cinema, maybe. So, but it's, a, it's an unusually long film, even in our era of unusually long films. And it also has a intermission, which is quite unusual in this day and age. And I think that's significant as well. And I, and, and I think it's important. It's not just that it's warranted by the material, but I think the duration is necessary. It's what enables it to become this kind of transcendent audiovisual time traveling experience as opposed to just another trip to the cinema for a couple of reasons one is that it's the only way to even begin to convey the overwhelming vastness of the horror and tragedy of the holocaust and the war there's so many stories like you are just overwhelmed by as what when you're watching it by each one of these stories contains enough humanity and tragedy and horror and betrayal to be its own kind of Oscar-winning Hollywood movie if someone just decided to pick up on it and dramatize it in that way and there's like there's hundreds of them and and that's not all of it either they could have they could have made as you as you know as you say they could it was there's a 36 hour film in there and I'm sure it could have been longer and then the second reason that that duration is so important is for me the most interesting one actually it's because it, I think it kind of like it does something very unusual the, the having it in your brain when you're seeing the images from the contemporary city um, juxtaposed with the audio, which is this British Jewish woman, Melanie Hyams, in the English language version anyway, essentially very, quite fairly deadpan narrating the, the contents of Bianca uh, Stigter's book about what happened at these addresses during the war. That kind of 
disconnect combined over the duration of the film so that you're inevitably your brain's wandering and coming back and bringing details from your own life and you're thinking about you know your shopping list or you're thinking about what you were looking at on your phone in the intermission which in my case was news of more news of bombings in Gaza um, and it's all kind of melding together into this to induce this very unusual I think in a cinema mental state something that I've only ever experienced in, in other really long films like slow cinema like Jean Dillman, for instance. It's almost like your brain starts projecting the visuals to match the audio onto the screen that you're seeing. So I felt like I was seeing the ghosts of the resistance fighters or, you know, the Nazis walking down, you know, the street again. And, and I don't mean to overstate it, but it, it is that powerful, I think, that, the, that it's very, very simple in a way, the, the, the juxtaposition of the different audio and, and visuals. But I think the impact it has is really, really special. Yeah, I think it will be an entirely different experience depending what it is that you kind of personally bring to it, parallels that you draw yourself. For me, because, you know, my hometown of Khartoum, Sudan is like currently being occupied. Like it really just struck me watching it, like the idea that like so many, there's just been a mass exodus from that city and it's like horrifically violent and war going on every day. But the idea of like this future city without us, as this city of Amsterdam went on without these people and their descendants who should rightfully be there was, oh, it's a lot. Um, I think another thing as well, I was reading some of the reviews and Peter Bradshaw said something that is quite interesting when he said the idea that this is in 4K and you're seeing people walk around in modern living times just has this realisation that when this happened many decades ago, it looked to the people living like the film looks just right now. And I think for me, who don't have really a touching point of the past and, and only thinks of this happening through archival footage and people who I probably would have never met in any sort of situation, it really brings it home in an eerie way that this was happening in modern time, in colour, with living people who had preoccupations that were off their time. And he's so clever, so clever the way that he's just walking around the city that is living and breathing and existing at this point in time, as he has once before. It's very effective and, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. I, I saw, I was very lucky to see Sunshine State in Rotterdam last year, which is his latest exhibition. And there was also, well, installation. And there was also this notion of lulling narration and juxtaposed images that just draw you in and this idea of repetition and hammering these notions in your head slowly until you're almost taken out of the work and forced to think about your life and the things that are happening in your life because there's no engagement, active engagement in new information. So you're existing in these two spaces, which is a very powerful um, narrative tool for, for a film. Like, narrative tool sounds simplistic, but, but it is really incredible the way that, that it happens in Occupy City. It's sort of an extraordinary step into empathy that he sort of forces you to do, I think. And, and in a way that sort of, you know, having read a bit of Bianca's book, like he's asking you to see these things as like true, fully rounded, precious human lives, each one that ends in an awful tragedy in a way that you hear stories in the book where there's one where there's a diary entry where somebody says, oh, yes, I looked out of my window today and, you know, all those poor Jewish people being, you know, rounded up. Uh, but it's all right because we went out to the woods and we picked strawberries and I had a good night's sleep. And so, like, I'm actually in a pretty good mood. And it's like that's the exact 
thing that McQueen won't allow you to do. Very zone of interest, that diary entry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is heavy. Like, I don't want to put people off saying, because it's not totally, somehow, and this is, again, a testament to his genius, it isn't completely, like, heavy or dirty or anything like that. Like, and I, and I, 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 I totally take your point, Hafa, about the, the sort of there but for the grace of God that it, the reminder to those of us who have spent all of our lives in like on Western European city, post-war Western European cities where the idea of bombardment seems very far away. I mean, I grew, I grew up in the in the East End, which was heavily bombarded during the Second World War. But 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 I think for a lot of people, it's a kind of that's something that happens in other countries, right? Obviously not for you, Layla. <laughs> so for a film to be reminding us that actually no, this could happen to people just like you, with families just like your family, and it did happen, and it might happen again, and it is happening right now, is is very powerful. But also the the, the sort of moments of joy and humour that that you just can't deny like there's a story there that which I love about the resistance kind of stealing a um, Nazi um, seaplane flying it all the way over from um, Amsterdam to Broadstairs and some and they had to like cover up the uh, they were getting shot at by the the British uh, soldiers obviously because it had a big swastika on the side of the plane so they had to lean out of the plane mid-air and like cover it up with a kind of orange flag or a a peace flag or something and then somehow like landed on the beach at Broadstairs which I've never I've been to Broadstairs many times never heard that before just a wild story and then and the and the final shot of of these kids like bursting joyously forth out of these beautiful gold doors of a synagogue after a bar mitzvah there were these sort of moments that like you know there's a kind of joy and even in the fact that like yes we are kind of oblivious sometimes like life does go on like we don't know what happened in these streets and in these houses before us and and there's like I like the way that the film kind of asserts that not only is that okay, but in some way it is also a way of honouring the dead to go on living. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I want to make sure that everyone goes and watches if they can. I think it's just this weird intersection of time where I'm thinking about this film and thinking of Jonathan Glazer and thinking about what has happened in the world that puts you in a, uh, odd mindset. But you just brought up the the closing scene there and spoiler alert, other is it even? But it ends in a way that is very beautifully hopeful and and I think Bianca and Steve have been very open that they're raising their kids there and um, they're seeing their kids make new friends and create new life and, and new stories um, and I think that's quite beautiful and, and, and quite a beautiful byproduct of having uh, partners work together, life partners work together as well. Well we should get some scores on this even though I think I could talk about this for four hours and 20 minutes. Ellen do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I think it's going to be a 555 even though I, as I say I was didn't know what to expect. I, 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 Steve McQueen is just one of the best and it, the experience I wish I could give it higher than a five score for the experience itself because it's unlike any other experience I've had in the cinema before and as I say like truly transcendent and then, yeah, as you say, could be talking about this film for hours and hours and hours. So definitely another five in retrospect as well. Uh, not to seem like I'm copying your homework, but five, five, five. I don't think Steve McQueen has made a film that isn't five, five, five. Uh, Hapa, what about you? Say, I think to me it's exactly the same. I love Steve McQueen. I have loved everything that Steve McQueen has ever did. I feel very privileged to live at a time where he's allowed to make such 
incredible and varied work and excel in such different fields. Will he I make think... a film with Zac Efron though? When? <laughs> oh my God. You guys, you guys have He's making a effect. film with Harris Dickinson. So we're, we're only one step removed. <laughs> you guys who have ties to him, if you can make this happen, that would mean a lot to me actually. Um, so I do think I'm also on the five, five, five train. I think I've now watched this film twice so i spent nine hours of my life in that space and i don't think i have ever before in my life rewatched a film that was so long and demanding in ways um in such a short space of time but i just found myself thinking of it again and, and wanting to exist in that space again and un- understanding how um steve and bianca kind of visualize that that format that to me it seems so simple when you tell people these are images and someone is snap is telling you about these images and it seems so simple and seems like it's been done thousands of times again and at the same time it feels like i've seen something that has never been done before and i don't think this comes along very often so yes that's incredible five 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 i mean even though uh some of his subject matters are heavy. I just, I do feel very lucky to be alive at the same time that Steve McQueen is making work. But yeah, we should move on. Well, kind of leave the Holocaust and go back to the world of wrestling uh, for Film Club. It's The Wrestler. The Wrestler stars Mickey Rourke as an aging professional wrestler who, despite his failing health and waning fame, continues to wrestle and attempt to cling to his success of his 1980s heyday. So, yeah, how about, I mean, even just saying that, in some ways, this feels a bit like a dark sequel to The Iron Claw, where it's just like, um, you know, this is this is almost like the, the terrible next chapter that could happen for the 80s wrestler if they survive the 80s. Yeah, I... I'm wondering if anyone who's listening to this right now can send us uplifting wrestling films. <laughs> um, like, just fun, joyful, no trauma, just people putting on silly costumes. I love The Wrestler. This is a film I hadn't seen it in many years, actually. And it is so good. I mean, I, I'm i in a point with Adam Adonofsky where I just don't trust him. I feel very tentative going into anything that he has a hand on. Um, was that, really was that point reached when the whale in the whale when uh, Brendan Fraser uh, lifted off into the sky? Was that the exact moment that you came to that point? That was my trust on that and Adonowski <laughs> also leaving my body. I mean, well, something uh, actually that Bobby Gordon referenced uh, a little earlier on, but you haven't had the interview. It gave me a sense of whiplash to to rewatch this film and realize how good he can be and how interesting a storyteller he can be. And at the same time, the casting on this film, this is incredible. Mickey Roar. I know we're going back to 2008 Oscar discourse, but it is truly, truly staggering how great he is in this. And then at the same time, Marisa Tomei, who's one of my favorites, and she's so uh, sexy in a way that makes you feel that it is impossible for anyone to be that sexy and commanding and incredible, but at the same time, so sad and so foreign and full of responsibility and it's such a hard line to to walk and think of this 16 years ago now before so many films that have explored the same sort of dichotomy and in sex work and in ways that have been so beautiful that she has done this 16 years ago is incredible i think everything in this film is great cinematography is great i think um, costume design is great i think the actors obviously are, are really outstanding and that final scene i have this thing where where i watch a film 
and there's a final cut. And if it's at the perfect moment, I get this insane frenzy. They're like, oh my God, I cannot believe this just happened. This man just cut exactly where I think he should cut. Um, and this is one of those films, whenever I think this is perfect, uh, an ending, I think this is it. So I'm quite re-energized that we are talking about the wrestler now because I think it is truly a great film. You can watch it with your dad. You can watch it with your husband who doesn't like films. You can watch it with your friends. It, it is really that good. Have you also, though, Mandela affected that he, Mickey Rourke did win the Oscar for this? Yes. <laughs> I'm always shocked when I learned that he did <laughs> It's happened yeah. like 12 times. It's just my brain refuses to who, accept. Who did it. win that year? I was, um, I'm literally just Googling this. If you have to Google, then it was just Mickey Rourke. We'll just rewrite it. Yeah, <laughs> let's do this right now. Let's make this fact. Oh, Daniel Day Lewis. What for? Uh, oh, for um, Daniel Plain. There will be blood. There will be blood. Yeah. Oh damn it! We can't even be them. <laughs> I do enjoy the parallels between um, Mickey Rourke being, you know, being a bit of a washed-up actor looking for a comeback, and his character in, in this film, and they're being kind of utilised in the film in this in the same way that you know I was talking about Zac Efron kind of leveraging or utilising his public persona as a sort of slightly past it no offence about her a teen heartthrob but um, <laughs> um, to, but to deepen the, the character roles that he's playing I like it when films do that when they kind of acknowledge the public conversation about an actor I think it's smart um, and this is maybe more of a controversial point but I also like when films make the implicit comparison between sex work like female sex work and other types of male gendered sort of physically mentally wearing labor such as wrestling there's a there's a early stanley kubrick film that i was watching recently um, called killer's kiss i was watching it because it's got a performance from an actor called frank silvera who is um sort of racially ambiguous and i'm very interested in kind of the history of racially ambiguous performances for my book i wrote about i write about it in in my book in that context and also interracial it's potentially one of the first interracial kisses although i don't think stanley kubrick knew about it but 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 from this particular point of view it's got uh the lead of the film is a boxer not a wrestler but there's a, a really interesting uh, sort of quite a sequence quite early on the film on in the film where kubrick juxtaposes this 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 uh, boxer walking into his apartment with his opposite neighbour, who is a, a woman who works as a taxi dancer, which is a kind of period-specific low-level sex work where, where men would pay you to dance with them in nightclubs and maybe more. And each of their kind of movements are sort of shot in parallel. So it's very obviously inviting you to compare her work and his work and, and so, you know, suggesting that you can, you can respect this as labour and not stigmatise it for sort of old-fashioned misogynistic reasons, while at the same time recognising that it can be very damaging to the body and to the soul to use your body to, to make a living in this way. Yeah, and before I add on to this, I just want to correct myself and say that actually, because this film ran on for the 2009 Oscars, Sean Penn won for Milk over uh. Mickey Rourke. <laughs> And now I am back. I am back on my train of rewriting history. <laughs> and I think that we can do it. But how is this possible? No, my brain will simply refuse to absorb that information. And I'll think Mickey Rourke won't within 10 minutes from now. Honestly, God, I'm going to send him a letter today saying I am so sorry this was done to you. Um, but yeah, I think everything that Alan just said is, is such a fantastic point. And also, it also comes from that understanding of parents who have this this desire to do right by their kids but are so drawn out by life and the consequences and the cards that are dealt to them 
and understanding that you will go to whatever circumstances and whatever places that you need to go to to provide for your kids and to make sure that they have a different um, life path, which is in, in a way the antithesis to this dad of the iron claw of wanting your children to be completely different, to follow completely different pathways than the ones that you have followed um, and this desire to safeguard. Yeah, it's truly, truly a great movie. Mm. But both films have that kind of hard-earned but very beautiful compassion of the child for the parent who has failed ultimately to protect them from, you know, all the degradations of the world, but meant well and tried. <laughs> and it just had the opposite of that. Yeah, and I just remember Mickey Rourke prancing in front of Evan Rachel Wood's house and he has his hands kind of in his pocket and his lips are so poofy and he's kind of like, you see him in daylight and he looks like this creature. And at the same time, he's just so nervous and trepidant and, and this little teenager inside the house has his entire life in her hand. Ah, yeah, it's an incredible it's performance, isn't it? Mickey Rourke! <laughs> How come? <laughs> So we are highly recommending you revisit The Wrestler. But before we go, uh, you guys are going to give me your non-movie recommendations for people who somehow still have time on their hands after they watch these three films. Hafford, do you want to go first? What is your non-movie recommendation? My non-movie recommendation is Ellen's book. <laughs> that too. Why but not? Also, That's fine. No, that as well. Oh my God. Segway. Um, so Ellen's book and buy yourself a, a inhaler, a steamer inhaler, this little thing that produces steam and you put it in your face and you sniff it and it clears out your senses. It cost me 20 pounds and it was the best 20 pounds I've spent in recent months. Thank you so much for the people who invented this little steamer machine. So that is my recommendation. It is cold out there. Get your senses cleared out. Yeah, I believe Ellen's book is £25, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not right now. It is reduced. You can get a 10% discount. Come on, get in. Buy it while it's hot. (laughs) Get (laughs) in. Eleanor, what about you? What is your non-movie recommendation? Well, my non-movie recommendation is my book, Screen Deep, How Film and TV Can Solve Racism and Save the World. But also, um, I recently saw a new exhibition at the Royal Academy. It's on for a couple of months, so people can have a chance to catch it, even if they're not currently in London. It's called Entangled Pasts. 1768 to now and it's all about kind of how colonialism has been an influence on and been reacted to in visual arts like from that point in history when you know the East India Company was very much still a going concern to now when um, we have more artists of colour who are who have family histories of resulting from colonialism and responding to the artworks but the reason I bring it up is because there are loads of movie and tv parallels um, including the chance to see the the portrait of um the 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 Amara Santis film Bell from 2011 is based on um in the flesh as it were which which I found really uh, exciting Um, and also the chance to see Ray Fearon who I know best as Beris in the tv show Champion and the Candice uh, Carty-Williams show about a family of British Jamaican musicians. Um, he's playing Frederick Douglass, the great uh, emancipated slave turned abolitionist, in an installation by Isaac Julian, a.k.a. 
one of only three black British filmmakers to have a film released in the entirety of the 1990s uh, who made a film called Young Soul Rebels. And, and, you know, to bring it back to our favourite, Steve McQueen is one of these kind of visual artists who has made, made the move into filmmaking as well and then gone back again. So, yeah, really great exhibition. So much in there. Lots of interesting parallels. It's a good one to go and see if you're reading my book at the same time. <laughs> Oh my God, Ellen, I was here. Go get your sinuses clear. Like, <laughs> colonization. <laughs> I'm nothing if not a broken record. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. I wish I was in London to see it. Thanks very much. Yeah, that's just reminding me probably of like the greatest exhibition day that I ever had was I went on an American history tour of Washington and you start at Frederick Douglass's house and you saw all these different things and you kind of see the White House and you kind of the incredible man was explaining to us about like the role of slavery in the building of the White House and its maintenance. And then you end up at the African American Museum where you then start with slavery at the bottom. And as you go up and up, you sort of work your way into like more modern times and you end with Beyonce. Hey! Oh, that's so beautiful! <laughs> it was so beautiful. I think it's one of the best days of my entire life. So if you're in Washington, do that. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthinmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next time we'll be talking Vim Vendor's Perfect Days, Olivia Colman's new comedy Wicked Little Letters, hearing about the highlights from the Berlin Film Festival, as well as an interview with the wonderful Juliette Binoche. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hafez Ross and Ellen E. Jones. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.